Job chapter 1, verse 6 to 22 is our passage. You know, on Wednesday nights, we have a different selection of our people in this room. We have some people who are not with us in this room, and it allows me to do some things and say some things on Wednesday nights that aren't always appropriate when everyone's in the room. This is the elite core, Wednesday night, A-team. And so one of the things I like to do, because you are cultured people, is share with you cultured things, highbrow things. And so I think what I want to do tonight is begin, before we get to the book of Job, with a poetry reading, if you don't mind. Okay? Poetry reading. This is a poem called How the Grinch Stole Christmas, written by a man named Theodore Seuss Geisel. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, just a selection. 3,000 feet up, up on the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip-top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's. He was grinchously humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry. Very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. A little poetry as we begin. The Grinch thought in Seuss's story that he could stop Christmas if he took all the external trappings of Christmas from the Who's. And I'm not trying to bring the book of Job down to the level of Dr. Seuss. I'm just saying to you that that's a, an allegory. It's a parable. It's a picture of what you see in the opening chapter of the book of Job. It's not the Grinch that we're concerned with. It's Satan. And he genuinely thought that if he took all of the external trappings of God's blessings from Job, he would destroy Job's love for the Lord and his faith in the Lord and his relationship 
with the Lord. Now, like the Grinch, Satan was unsuccessful in his work. Unlike the Grinch, Satan's heart does not grow three sizes at the end of this story. And we're actually going to move from Job chapter 1 next to Job chapter 2. And we'll see something uh, quite shocking as we make that move. So, let's move to a, a real uh, important reading. Not just Dr. Seuss, but the Word of God. I want to read from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6 to verse 22. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth. A blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and he said, Your sons... And your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's quite a story. The book of Job's quite a story, and it's made up of several individual episodes that are... Uh, Things that, I mentioned this last week, we initially talk about Job and we sort of chuckle and say, oh, he had a tough life. But when you actually read about his life and you think about these things, and you try to put yourself in his situation, uh, it's really nothing to chuckle about at all. Uh, it's shocking in the scope and the severity of the suffering that he experienced. And so the task in front of us is to make sense of this, uh, to understand what it might 
have to say in forming our own lives and ultimately not just to take wisdom from this individual book but to see how this individual book and this story fits in the broader story of the scriptures so that we see maybe how the book of Job points us to the truth about Jesus. So I think the place to begin uh, is making sure we are all square on the characters involved in this story in the setting of this story because there's some unusual things that when you read it you might leave scratching your head. Now, for some of you, this is going to be super basic, super redundant. You're going to say, yes, I know all these people. I understand all these things. But for some of you, it won't be redundant. And some of you may have questions, and you may be embarrassed to admit that you have questions. And so we're just going to walk through this simply and basically to make sure that we understand who all the players are in the story. So we're going to start with the Lord, who is Yahweh, And I want you to understand that when we read about the Lord in this passage, we're talking about the Creator who is sovereign over all that He created. One of the things I told you last week in the introduction to the book of Job, that the book of Job is not primarily about Job, and is not primarily about you. It's ultimately a book about God. And Job was involved with God in this story, and you hopefully have some involvement in a positive way with the Lord. But this book is a book about the Lord. And just to review some basic Old Testament terminology, just so we're all on the same page, in the Old Testament, when you find the word LORD in all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. I think Yahweh is, most scholars agree, the better pronunciation of that word. That's God's name that he revealed to Moses. Moses said, who am I going to say sent me uh, when I go back with the people and Pharaoh and all the, all the questions they're going to be asking? He said, you tell them that Yahweh, that I am, sent you. And the Jews were hesitant to use this name because there's a commandment, the fourth commandment, excuse me, the third commandment that relates to using God's name incorrectly. And over time, they became so concerned that they might say Yahweh's name irreverently or without respect that they stopped saying it completely, which is why it's not translated in most English Bibles as Yahweh. It's translated as Lord, but in all caps, so that you understand it is a different word than Lord with little o, little r, little d. That's the word Adonai. Adonai. It's a term of respect. It's a title of authority. The Lord, with not all caps, is somebody who's powerful, somebody to be feared, somebody to be respected. In some contexts, that Hebrew word could be translated, sir. But when it's directed to God, it takes on more meaning than just sir or mister. It becomes a title or even a name for God. And then the last word, the generic English word God, is the Hebrew word Elohim. And I'm just going to ask you to file that word away in your head because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. It's the word Elohim. It's actually a plural word in Hebrew, and it can refer to false gods like Baal, or it can refer to the true God, Yahweh, the Lord. Adonai. When you read the book of Job, it's a lot like the book of Genesis. People read the book of Genesis and they say, where did this God come from? What was he doing before all these other things he created and created people and the Garden of Eden and all 
Where did he come from? What was he doing? Who is he? And the, the Bible doesn't answer those questions. It just starts and he's there. And that's how the book of Job starts. Just assumes that you know the truth that there is one true God. Not any question in the book of Job about how many true gods there are. There's only one true God in the book of Job. And the book of Job assumes from the very beginning to the very end that he's in complete control of everything. I'm going to talk more about that tonight. So, character number one, the Lord. Next, the sons of God. The sons of God. We read about the sons of God right there in verse 6 at the beginning of what we read. Now, some of this might be a little bit odd to you. It might be stuff that you've never wrestled with or thought about. I'm just going to throw some ideas your way, and I'm going to put some verses on the screen, and we'll kind of talk about those verses. Uh, the sons of God are personal spiritual beings who were created by God. Okay, these are creatures. There is only one God, the Creator. He alone is eternal. Everyone and everything else that exists in the universe, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, is a creation. When we read about these sons of God, they are personal, they're spiritual, they don't have bodies like you have a body, and they are created by God. They are somehow involved in the administration of life on earth. And that's about all I'm going to say about that. You know why? That's about all the Bible says about it. And you can go to the bookstore, bookstore, and I can show you a section where people fill volumes speculating about that stuff, and it's just speculation. So we're just going to leave it at that. Somehow they're involved in the administration of life on earth. Also, some of them are good and loyal to the Lord, and others are bad and actually aligned with Satan. I know we haven't talked about Satan yet. That's coming. So some of these sons of God are good, and some of them are bad. Together, the sons of God form something that theologians, there's a couple of different terms they use, but the term that I, I like the best, I think is most helpful, is the divine council. There's a divine council. There's a group of these created spiritual beings that are somehow involved in the administration of life on earth, the things that take place on the earth. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. They're all created by God. They're all created to serve God. Some of them are rebellious against God. And together they form this group that you might call the, the divine council. So that's a lot, okay? That's a lot when Job just says, here's the sons of God. And we're trying to understand who they are. So I'm going to put some verses up. We're not going to read all these. We'll just put them up. You can jot them down if you want. You can snap a picture. You can ignore them. Um, this is just a sampling of some of what the Bible says about this group. Psalm 82.1 says that there is a group. In Psalm 82, it, the word Elohim, remember I told you to remember the word Elohim, is translated little g, God, plural, gods. There's a group of gods, and they've been given some measure of ruling authority in the world, okay? We're just taking bits and pieces from all these verses, trying to add them up. Psalm 89 describes God as being surrounded by the holy ones. These holy ones. They're not human beings. It's not best to think of them as human beings. It's best to think of them as some sort of spiritual being, some sort of angelic being. And they're there with God, and uh, there's some sort of assembly. Psalm 89 describes that. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. If you were with us when we worked through the book of Revelation not that long ago, you know there's all sorts of stuff about living creatures and the elders and the, uh, 
different beings that are around the throne, and we worked through all of that. Uh, and I told you, I think most of these represent some sort of angelic creature that uh, exists and lives in the presence of God and has some measure of power and authority. Job chapter 38, which we'll come to in a few weeks, references the sons of God, and it says they were there when God created the world. In fact, at the point when God was creating the world, Job 38 says the sons of God were singing for joy. These created beings, spiritual beings, were watching God create the physical universe and essentially cheering God on, applauding, approving what he was doing in awe of the Creator. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a fascinating verse. It talks about the peoples of the earth being divided according to the number of the sons of God. That is, God divided the peoples out on the face of the earth. There's some sort of correspondence to these beings, these creatures, in the administration of life on earth, and the numbers of the peoples and their allotment somehow relates to this, uh, this group of beings. 1 Kings 22 is interesting because it's really clear in that passage that some of these divine creatures or these spiritual creatures, they oppose God and they oppose God's people. And they want to see God's people sin against God. And do wicked things. Genesis 6-4, which we could rabbit trail on for hours, talks about the sons of God rejecting their God-given place and taking on relationships with human women. New Testament comments on that verse, and I think when the New Testament comments on it, you should listen to what the New Testament says in explaining it. That somehow Jude and Peter talk about these spiritual beings rebelling against what God had created them to do and who God had created them to be in entering into these inappropriate relationships. Ephesians chapter 6, you may be familiar with as the armor of God passage, but at the top end of that passage, it says, we wrestle against the principalities and powers, the rulers and the authorities, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that's a lot. You can process those things, but the sons of God are here. And there's clearly a meeting taking place where the Lord is with the sons of God. And as we'll see with Satan, some of these creatures are opposed to God, but some of them are aligned with God. And that's just a sampling of some of the things the Bible says about this group uh, that Job calls the sons of God. All right, let's talk about Satan, specifically the Satan. Because in this passage, he's not just referred to as Satan, but there's an article in the Hebrew. He's called the Satan. He's a member of the divine council. Okay? Put your thinking cap on. If he's a member of the divine council, he's a creature. It's not like there's the divine council and then there's a good God and there's a bad God. There's only one God. And amongst these spiritual beings, there is one called the Satan. The Satan hates God and he hates God's people. And he is described in the Bible as an adversary and an accuser. An adversary and an accuser. So my hunch is that for some of you, you would be surprised at how much the Bible says about this divine council, the sons of God. And you would probably be equally surprised about how little the Bible says about Satan. 
Because I'll be honest with you, there's not as much as people sometimes make out. And so I just give you uh, not everything, but there's a lot of what the Bible has to say about Satan. Uh, in the Old Testament, Satan is only mentioned three times. Genesis to Malachi. You read about the Satan only three times. One of these I read in my quiet time just this morning, just the passage that I came to. It's in 1 Chronicles 21, 1 and following, where David takes a census of the people, and he's not supposed to take that census, and it was the Satan who incited him to take that census. It was mentioned in that story. He's mentioned in the book of Job, which we're reading. He's also mentioned in the book of Zechariah. Outside of those passages, Satan is not mentioned. And you're thinking, what about Genesis 3? That's a serpent in that story. Now, when you get to Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, John looks back on the whole scope of the Bible and he does something really helpful. In those verses in Revelation, John says there is a dragon, he's the ancient serpent, he is the devil, and he is Satan, and he's the deceiver of the world. So John helps us to look back on all of Scripture and to say this is one being, one creature. Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the one who accuses God's people, slanders God's people, the one who deceives the world. So that's Revelation. Uh, some of you are interested in the fall of Satan. And I'll be, interest, I'll be honest with you, I've had people talk to me about the fall of Satan, and I know the theories, and I know the ideas, and people say, you know, you know, the Bible says this and this about what Satan used to be and what happened and all the rest, and I usually say, where does it say that? And they say, oh, it's in there. It's in there. Where does it say that? I think there's some passages that talk about the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Luke 10, Revelation 12. Uh, I think they do describe the fall of Satan. I think we need to be pretty careful in trying to filter out what we have heard about the fall of Satan and what the Bible actually says about the fall of Satan. I'll just be honest with you. It doesn't say as much as people thinks, thinks as much as people think it says. Get that grammar right? Not as much there as people think, but there's some there. How about 1 Peter 5.8? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Peter writing to believers, you have an adversary, his name is the devil, dragon, ancient serpent, Satan. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. It's a scary verse. Peter intends it to be sobering. But Peter doesn't intend it to be terrifying because Peter doesn't intend for you to put the devil on the same level with the Lord Yahweh, the one true God. If you want to put Satan on the same level as anybody, it's not the one true God, it's not Jesus but it would be someone like Michael or Gabriel, one of the angels named in the Bible. That would be the equivalent, more or less, to what the Bible says about Satan. So Satan, just so we're clear, is a Hebrew term. The Greek word is diabolos. The Satan and the diabolos. And he is a slanderer, an adversary, and an accuser. Okay, He's in this story. One more character. This one's easy. Job. 
Job is here. He's a wealthy man. He had a large family. We talked about a lot of this last week, so we're going to move quickly. Uh, He was unique among God's servants for his integrity and his relationship with the Lord. So God has some high praise for Job in this passage. We'll come to it in just a minute. We know that what God says about Job is true for two reasons. Number one, because God says it. God doesn't lie. It's not possible for God to lie. So if God says a thing, it's a true thing. So when God speaks about Job, it's true. We also know it's true from a narrative standpoint because we read the last, uh, last week the first five verses of the book of Job. And we read all this stuff about the book saying, look, he's really a good guy. He's an upstanding guy. He loves the Lord. He fears the Lord. He turns away from evil. He's blameless, not in the sense that he's morally perfect, but he's blameless in the sense that all this stuff that's about to be unleashed on his life, it has nothing to do with sin in his life. There's no secret, hidden, unrepentant skeleton in the closet that he needs to deal with. He genuinely is a man who loves the Lord and he's walking with the Lord, okay? So those are the characters. Now let's just talk real quick about the setting. This story that we read takes place in two locations. The first location is the Lord and Satan, and that takes place in this council, okay? In this spiritual realm, if you will. And then what happens in that conversation between the Lord and Satan, I don't know the best way to describe it, but it spills over to the earth. And it has actual impact on Job and obviously on his family. So that's the scene. Let's just take them one at a time. The Lord and Satan. I know it's an odd thing to think about the Lord and Satan. And here they are. They're just having a conversation. Because you've probably been told God can't be in the presence of evil. Well, he's right here in the presence of evil and he's talking. Satan, they're having a conversation. So the place to begin this is odd, is that the Lord initiates a conversation. That's how it happens in the story. And Satan responds evasively. The Lord initiates a conversation, and Satan responds evasively. So notice what the, the question from the Lord is. It says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, what's the question? Where have you been? What have you been doing? Where have you been and what have you been doing? Uh, Is God unaware of where Satan has been? Is God unaware of what Satan has been doing? Is God just shocked like you might see somebody walk in the building and say, well, where, where have you been? What are you doing here? I didn't expect you to. You're not shocked. He's there, but he's asking a question. Right? God knows everything. And yet he asks questions in the Bible. It's not because he needs the information. Adam, where are you? Did he know where Adam was? Right? He asks a question because a question is an invitation for Adam to come clean and to repent. Adam, where are you? We're hiding. God knew he was hiding. Where have you been? Satan says, uh, literally, literally, he says, I've been going and walking. Going and walking. It's just normal words to say I've been on on the go, on the move. I read a commentator who said, 
Satan's answer was like the great Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere. And I actually found a map. That's everywhere Johnny Cash mentioned in the song. Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopillo, Barranquilla, Amperdia. I've been everywhere. I don't think Satan's just giving a travel summary. I think there's an evasiveness to his answer. I think what Satan says to the Lord here is, now I'm not calling your children or my children Satan. That's not what I'm doing. But this is the equivalent of when your kids come home from school and you say to them, what'd you do at school today? Nothing. I mean, they gave you an answer, but you say, oh, come on, there's more to it than that. What happened? Anything exciting happened? Nothing. What'd you learn today? Nothing. Okay. I think there's an evasiveness here. Satan knows that he has to answer. Satan knows that God knows where he's been. And this is a gritting your teeth, clenching your fists, white-knuckled, angry, defiant, I've been walking around kind of answer. So the Lord initiates the conversation. Satan responds evasively. I want you to notice this. The Lord was the one who brought Job into the spotlight. This really changes the way you think about this story. It's not like Satan shows up and God says, where you been? And he says, oh, I've been walking and going and I've been all over the place. Me and Johnny Cash, we've been everywhere. And then Satan immediately pops in and says, I hate that guy Job. I want to blow him up. That's not how it goes. Where you been? Well, I've been walking. Hmm. Have you considered my servant Job? God brings him up. And God puts him in the spotlight. And I don't think there's any way around it. When you read what the Lord said to Satan, he's bragging on Job. He's, have, you, have you seen Job in all your going and walking? Did you see him? Have, do you, have you heard of this guy, Job? Been everywhere. Did you meet Job? He's a pretty good guy. Turns away from evil. He fears me. He's blameless. He keeps my commands and laws. He's a pretty good guy. And what follows is Satan doing what he does best. He slanders God and he slanders Job. And he suggests that Job was a mercenary servant. And he suggests that God was unworthy of worship. So look, I gave you the, the places where Job shows up in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, excuse me, where Satan shows up in the Old Testament. Three direct references. Probably you can add in uh, safely, without question, Genesis chapter 3. When you read about Satan saying a thing in the Old or the New Testament, you really need to listen to what he says and what he doesn't say and what he says without saying it. It's true in the Garden of Eden. It's true with Jesus in the wilderness. It's true in this conversation with the Lord. Okay, So verse 10, Satan says, you put a hedge around Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, I've considered him. He's got, you put a hedge around him. You're protecting him. You blessed him. You gave him this great family. Come on. Come on. 
seven sons, three daughters, all the livestock, all the wealth, all the land, everything he touches turns to gold. Of course he loves you. What's he saying without saying it? He's saying Job loves getting stuff. He doesn't love you. Job's just a mercenary. He's a, you hired him. Job's with you because you gave him all this stuff. Job's not a good guy. Job's a selfish, greedy person like all the rest of them. And what's he saying or implying without actually saying it about the Lord? Who would love you for you? Are you kidding me? I'd love you too if you gave me all that stuff. But if you took all that stuff from Job, which is the only reason he loves you, he'll do what? He will curse you to your face. Take his stuff and he'll curse you to your face. So Job's a mercenary. God's unworthy. Notice what Satan does not say. When God brags on Job, Satan doesn't say, oh, I got the naughty list here. Now, we said last week, Job wasn't sinless. That plays out in the book. He's not sinless, but Satan doesn't drag the list of stuff out here. He takes a different route, and he says, Job just loves you because you gave him stuff, and no one would love you for you anyways. So in response to that, God gave Satan two things. He gave him permission and a prohibition. Permission and prohibition. You see God's sovereignty here. I'm going to let you go this far, but I'm going to draw a line. I'm going to let you get after Job, but I'm going to put you on a leash. The permission, verse 12, all that he has is in your hand. And you understand as the reader that what's implied in that is you can take it from him. All those things, those reasons that you think Job loves me, you can take those from him and we'll see what happens. The prohibition is, verse 12, don't touch Job. Don't touch Job. So, that's scene one. This conversation between the Lord and Satan. Scene number two. Job's suffering and Job's response. So this picks up in verse 13. Uh, we read verse 13 down to 19. Uh, easy to read it. You can't imagine what it was like to live it. So Job lost his wealth, and he lost his children. And in putting that in one sentence, I'm not saying that they're the same or they're equal. We're just acknowledging. In this experience, he lost all his wealth, and he lost his kids. So verse 15, the Sabaeans came, they took your donkeys and the cattle and all the servants with them, and only one was left. And then in verse 16, fire from God fell, probably some sort of lightning, most scholars think. There was a fire, burned up all the sheep and the servants with the sheep. Verse 17, the Chaldeans, Babylonians, they came and they made a raid. They took the camels and your servants. And then verse 18, the big one, a great wind, a whirlwind, maybe a tornado, struck the house where your kids were. They were there for the party, the oldest brother, and they're all dead. So, you're the, the omniscient, air quotes, omniscient reader. You know what happened in the previous scene. 
You know Satan's been involved in it. You know he's involved in these things. But did you notice what no one reported? No one said, Job, a guy in a red skin-tight suit with a tail and a pitchfork, he rolled up on... Nobody said that, right? That's not how it worked. And no one described a, a Hollywood scene. Hollywood, ever since the movie The Exorcist, they just keep recycling these same old ideas about Satan and demons and people crawling on the wall upside down and heads spinning around and projectile vomit and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. Nobody describes any of that, right? That's Hollywood. You understand that's Hollywood. So this is what we know about what happened to Job. Three things, okay? Number one, Satan was involved. Without question, Satan was involved. Number two, human and natural means were involved in these tragedies. Meaning the Sabaeans made a raid. And the Chaldeans made a raid. Those were human beings that came and raided. And there was natural phenomena that took place. There was this lightning from heaven or this fire from heaven. There was this great whirlwind, this tornado that struck the house. So there was human and natural means involved. And we also know that God was completely sovereign, ultimately sovereign over everything that happened to Job. God was sovereign over all of it. So look what Job says in verse 21. Just to jump ahead to his response, uh, he says that the Lord took those things from him. God took them. And the very next verse says that in all the stuff that Job said, he didn't sin. It wasn't sin for Job to say, God took those things from me. Now, you've, you've read it, and you know, yeah, but Satan, Job, it was Satan. Satan's out to get you. And the Babylonians and the Sabaeans, they're terrible, and sometimes bad things happen. You know all those things as the reader. But what Job says in the moment is, God took those things from me. And the author's telling you, Job didn't sin when he said that. And he didn't charge God with wrong. He didn't say anything wrong about God. Not laying any blame. As if he's blaming somebody, he's just stating the fact. God took these things from me. Job believes God's sovereign over all of it. Job believes God could have stopped all of those things from happening. He didn't. He was sovereign over it. God took those things from me. It wasn't sin when he said that. So what did he do and what did he not do? This is important. He did not curse God. He did not curse God. Instead, he grieved and he worshipped. He grieved and he worshipped. You remember what the Satan said to the Lord? If you take all these things away from Job, he will curse you to your face. All the things have been taken. He does not curse God to his face. He doesn't curse God at all. He grieves. He tears his clothes and uh, it says he fell naked on the ground and tore his robe and he shaved his head. and uh, He's grieving. He's lamenting. Clearly he's doing that, but he's also worshiping. Verse 20, the very last word in English says he worshiped. Literally, it's he prostrated himself on the ground as an act of worship in the presence of the, of the Lord. He bowed physically before the Lord. And he said, look, I, I showed up here naked like all the rest of you. And I'm going to go out naked without anything. And God gave me everything that I had. Listen, Job knew he wasn't a self-made man. 
Job did not believe there was any such thing as a self-made man. God gave me everything that I had and God took it from me. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, let me tell you something important about verse 22. Verse 22 applies to what we just read. It doesn't apply to the rest of the book. The author's saying, up to this point, so far so good. It's not like Job's life is good. But Job's response is exactly what the Lord thought it would be, what he knew it would be. So that's the story that takes you all the way through verse 22. What do you and I take away from that? There's a lot of things we could say. We're just going to try to boil this down to four truths, okay? Number one, we don't know everything about life on earth or life in heaven. And it's probably good for us from time to time, and by time to time I mean daily, to remind ourselves that we don't know everything. We don't know everything about anything. We don't know everything about what's going on in this world. World, we don't know everything about what's going on in the spiritual realm. We don't know why the Dallas Cowboys are so terrible. <laughs> Who knows? They're terrible. They're terrible. It's just, it, I don't know. Great lineup, great roster. I don't know. They're terrible. I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. He's not going to tell you everything. And Isaiah 55, 8, the prophet reminds us that God's thoughts are not yours and yours are not his. So we don't know everything. Uh, as far as we know, Job never received a report about Satan. Now you could argue that Job wrote the book and he came to the end and he put it all in here and he figured it all out. But there's no indication that in real time that God sent an angel down to whisper in his ear, this is really the devil. Hold tight, buddy. Hang in there. This isn't me. I'm doing my best. There wasn't any of that. He didn't know. Do you know what else Job didn't know? Not only did he not know that Satan was involved, but he didn't know that the Lord was the one who brought Job up to Satan in the first place. He didn't know those things. Uh, I think in your life, there's going to be situations and circumstances where you don't know everything that's going on. A lot of them. Where you're just sort of left scratching your head saying, I don't know how to make sense of that. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't know. I, the math doesn't add up. I can't compute what's happening. Look, Job is facing a test. A test. It's not a temptation from God. God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. But he tests his people. And the question on the table is, if you take all the stuff from Job, will he curse God to his face? And God wants Job to pass that test, and initially here he passes it. He does not curse God to his face, and he does not sin or charge God with wrong. So, in your life... In a circumstance or a situation that doesn't compute, 
You're not going to know everything that's going on. God's not going to tell you everything that he's doing. He causes people to walk by faith, not by sight. You should not immediately assume that God is punishing you. Pastorally, I talk to people that make that leap all the time. God's punishing me. I did something. He's punishing me. Is God punishing Job here? You read the prologue. He is not punishing Job. That's not what it's about. And if you find people in your life or if you have people in your life who assume that they know everything that God is doing in any one given situation, you are to understand they are fools. They don't know. We don't know. Okay, number two. The highest good in the universe is the glory of God. I hate to break this to you. Not your comfort. So I understand when you read this story, the big question is why? God, why? Why are you talking to Satan? Why did you bring Job up? You didn't have to do that. Why did you allow Satan to do these things in Job's life? Clearly, you set the limits and you were in control. You could have set the limits in a different place. Why did you do that? The big question is why? You understand when you read this, Satan's not omniscient. Satan did not know what was going to happen. He does not know everything. He's not omniscient. You understand that the Lord is. God didn't do this to find out. One commentator says, David Allen, in his commentary on Job, which is a great commentary, he says, neither this text nor any other in the book of Job answers that question, the why question. No answer. I agree with him in a sense, but I appreciate what Barry Webb said in his commentary. Barry Webb said, there's far more at stake in the councils of heaven and God's administration of the world than our prosperity and happiness, namely the vindication and the glory of God himself. And I think Webb's on to it with the why question. Look, in this conversation between the Lord and Satan, the glory of Yahweh has been slandered. No one would love you for you. Job does not love you for you. No one would do that. You are not worthy of anyone loving you just for yourself. And in this story, you may, you may not like how God goes about it, but how he chooses to go about vindicating his name involves great discomfort for Job. And that's what God's doing in this story. He is vindicating his name that has been slandered. And you say, well, Job, Job didn't slander it. Job wasn't there when it was slandered. Why did Job get drugged into it? That's a secret thing. That's God's thoughts. I don't have an answer for that. I'm just telling you, God is vindicating his name in this story. Why would God bring Job up? Because Job brings glory to God. And why would God allow Satan to take all these things from Job? Because God intends to vindicate his name in this divine council. He's been slandered. His worthiness has been mocked. And God's going to set the record straight. God cares supremely about his own glory. If God cared about your comfort or my comfort above his glory, you understand that's idolatry. That's taking something that's not ultimate and putting it in the ultimate place. And God's not going to do that. Supreme in his mind, supreme in his heart, supreme in his affections is his own glory. 
Okay, number three. We're close on time. God's absolutely sovereign over all that he created. This story is, I think, clear. Satan's on a leash. Martin Luther is always quotable. Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. Not equals. God's in control. God's sovereign. I'll just give you a few examples of this. We're not going to talk about these at any great length. The Bible says that God is sovereign over evil spirits. He's in control of them. The Bible says that he's in control of evil people. For example, Judas. Judas does an evil, wicked thing. And God's in control of that. The most shocking example of this is Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, where lawless men are said to have crucified Jesus the Messiah, and in doing this evil, wicked thing, they do exactly what God predestined to take place. He's completely sovereign over the most wicked thing that has ever happened on the earth, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. God's completely sovereign over that. It's the good news of the gospel tied to this truth that God is sovereign. It's not intended to frighten us. It's intended to give us hope and to encourage us. So very quickly, Barry Webb says, Even when Satan does his worst and he tries us most severely, we are never completely at his mercy. We are always finally in the hands of God who knows his true servants and will never abandon them. Number four, Jesus was and is the greater Job. So I just want you to conceptually understand what we've read in the book of Job. Chapter 1. God brags on a servant, a blameless servant, right? That's how it started. Have you seen Job, blameless man? Satan shows up to slander and to lie and to accuse and to destroy. And God is concerned about his own glory. That story plays out in the life of Jesus as we read it in the Gospels at least three different times. What happened when Jesus was born? God sent, like a proud father, a troop of angels to say, would you look at this? Would you look at that? That's my son. That's my son. And what happens? There is an insane, murderous, satanic plot to kill all the babies in that town. The story makes no sense, does it? You say, why would you do such a crazy thing? God brags on his servant. Satan tries to destroy him. What about Jesus' baptism? What happened when Jesus came up out of the water? What did the voice from heaven say? That's my son. And I am pleased with him. What's the very next story in the Gospels? Goes out into the wilderness and who does he run into? Satan tries to destroy him immediately. Immediately. Same story. What happens on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus walks up with Peter, James, and John? And he's transfigured and they see his glory. What does the Father say? Peter, quit talking about tents. That's my son. And I'm pleased in him and you need to listen to him. And it's just a few chapters later you read about Satan entering Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and to turn him over 
to the Jews and the Romans that they might destroy him. It's the same story, fundamentally. You understand the story is ultimately about Jesus, not Job. You compare these two, you say, yes, there's similarities. Can I tell you some of the differences? Job, at the end of this book, repents of his sin. Jesus never repents. He is a great high priest, tempted in every way like us, yet completely without sin. And Job walks into this as a righteous sufferer, but he doesn't know what's going on. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. One last quote, Robert Alden, commentary on Job. This chapter ends with the greatest man among all the peoples of the East, destitute, childless, and broken. In the space of less than a page and in a brief span of time, he went from being the greatest to being the least of men. Do you remember what we read from Philippians 2? The greatest. The one who was in the very form of God humbled himself and became a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men. Born in a manger. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. To wash feet, to lay down his life, to suffer, and to die. The one who was the greatest became the least. So that those of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins could know life. So let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. Grateful for the book of Job. Grateful that you have given us wisdom in the Bible. Lord, in our lives, we will face circumstances where we desperately need wisdom. And we're thankful that we can find it in your word. And we pray for the humility to be willing to admit that some things we don't know. Because you haven't told us. So they're not for us to know. Father, we want to love you for you, not for your gifts. We want to seek you. Because you're God, not because you can do good things for us or fix our problems. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus, your son. The one in whom you were well pleased. Who willingly came to suffer and die. That we might have life. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that though Satan buffet and scheme and slander and accuse that we have a great high priest who has been tempted and come through blameless, upright, turning away from evil. And that he promises to help us and to intercede for us. Father, I pray for folks who are here tonight who have or who are suffering and pray that their eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, be honored as we take a moment to sing and as we leave, we go back to our homes and our work and our schools. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.